Hello, welcome to Medicine on Box Voices. My name is Sam Giglani. Here we go in pursuit of conversations about medicine, not just about what it is and what it does, but about what it means, about the whole surprise of human life, its inevitable weathering, and the challenge of how to care for all of us. Hello, I am here on the grounds of Gladstone's Library with the writer Sarah Perry. <clears throat> Sarah is the award-winning and internationally acclaimed author of three novels, After Me Comes the Flood, The Essex Serpent and Melmoth. Sarah, welcome to Medicine Unboxed. Thank Voices. you for having me. Um, I'm going to start by asking you a bit about what's happened to you over the last three years. And I think it was around three years ago, wasn't it, when you became unwell with Graves' disease and the consequences of that. Do you mind just saying a bit about that time and what happened? Um, I, during writing The Essex Serpent, um, began to feel exhausted and to acquire chronic pain. And um, I remember having symptoms that were completely unaccountable, a seething sensation in my head as if there was a kettle boiling behind my eyes, um, numb hands, anxiety, being roused more quickly to irritation than is my nature. And everybody said, you're very stressed, you have a book coming out. And I remember beginning to be woken out of my sleep by blinding headaches and realising from that moment something was not quite right. I was eventually diagnosed with Graves' disease, which is not a serious illness. And I think often when I talk about having vanilla, I feel fraudulent because <laughs> it would never, you know, it's not going to kill you unless it's 1860 and they can't give you the medication. But it sort of caused a kind of system failure in my body, um, desperate exhaustion, cognition, changes to my cognition, made my eyes swell, and then eventually led to the kind of weakness that led to a ruptured disc, spinal surgery. So I ended up with a third degree burn on my leg, which had to heal naturally, which took four months. So I had this terrible wound for a very long time. And it um, fundamentally altered my sense of how I moved through the world as a healthy, robust person, careless of things, to somebody who had to negotiate every cobblestone and every step because the consequences could be really shocking pain. And um, I endured pain, which um, I feel has sort of altered me on a slightly cellular level in some way. Had um, you been health? Had you been entirely healthy until yes, that point? Yes, and even have you know high blood pressure or anything. You know, get tonsillitis occasionally, but um, it was very robust. And so it was your first encounter with any kind of illness as such. And even though you're saying, well, look, Graves' disease is, in the grand scheme of things, um, relatively trivial, so to speak, the consequences for you were huge, weren't they, in yeah. terms of pain? Yeah, they were. And I, I had read before about suicidal pain and had always felt from the privilege of being a healthy young animal, that this was absurd, that the impulse to live must surely outweigh any degree of suffering that you could that you could endure. Um, but I'm fairly confident that if I had been able to reach the box of medication, which I couldn't, it had been placed well out of my reach, I, I would have overdosed um, deliberately or accidentally. Um, one is reduced to an animal state. Um, and there's something about your whole sphere of feeling and reference dwindling down to the simple matter of suffering. So relieved to the extent that one is not actually screaming constitutes joy. 
So I couldn't dress myself or stand or sit or speak much. And if there was a moment where all the medications that I was taking left me with a couple of hours where I can lie in discomfort rather than agony, then I was perfectly happy. And sometimes I would, the doctor would phone to see how I was doing and I would say, I'm fine, I'm absolutely fine, um, because I wasn't howling. So... I mean, the interesting thing that I've <clears throat> come across that you've written about of that time was just how now you reflect on the relative um, waiting society affords different kinds of suffering, valorises some, yeah. diminishes others. And if anything, from that period, you look back and think, well, who am I to call it? Who am I to sort of somehow diminish yeah, and the there's, there's something, I have begun to think of pain as being uh, effectively an emotion in the sense that when you feel an emotion, whether it's, you know, distress or anger or desire, or whatever they are, you have no means of understanding what somebody else means when they say they feel that emotion too. They simply have to take your word for it. And one may deduce by behaviour that they are feeling these things. And pain is exactly the same. So that if you say to somebody, I'm suffering, they have no idea at all what that transfers to in their own kind of physical being. And um, everything felt so relative and it felt I felt the need to be courageous and to diminish constantly and to say, it's not so bad, you know, I don't have cancer. Um, that's the, the thing that always I, I kept saying over and over again. And I think one of the happiest moments of my life, actually, was when I went to go and see the neurosurgeon who eventually operated on me. And he asked me what level my pain was. And I couldn't speak um, through pain and through drugs. And he looked at me and he was a sort of brusque, very clever Asian man. And uh, he sort of looked me up and down and said rather impatiently, oh, 10. And so he didn't quite roll his eyes, but he just put 10. He said, oh, we'd better go and have an MRI scan. And I went and had the MRI. And by the time I came back to his office, he had the scan in front of him and his entire demeanour had changed. And he was sort of leaking compassion from every pore. And he sort of leant across the table and he put his hand on my hands and he said, you must be in torment. And I'll never forget the validation of what I was experiencing, that somebody had been prepared to say that I wasn't exaggerating, that I wasn't being ignoble, that I wasn't a coward, that it was real. And since then, I've often thought about that you can't do that with your emotions. There is no MRI scan yes. for all the things that we feel. So we have no means of persuading people that the things that we feel are true because they can't scan it. But, you know, and interesting that the MRI, it's the, I mean, and I, you know, I say this as a card carrying MRI gazer, but it's interesting that it took the MRI or it takes the MRI, taking it away from um, the doctor in question, it takes us the MRI to validate the fact of the expressed yeah. suffering. Yeah, absolutely. And which I don't think is an um, ungenerous impulse at all. I think in life, generally, one looks for evidence of things. Um, and it's okay to be slightly mistrustful when people tell you that they suffer or that they feel joy or whatever it is, and to want to know, what do you mean by that? Um, but you found it, in a way, you say that, but in a way, it sounds to me as if you're articulating it almost as a bit of a leveller that your experience of that therefore gave you a lens onto others and thought, well, we're all in this yeah. ship together. I was thinking about this and thinking, you know how when you're out in the dark 
And it takes a long time for your eye to get accustomed to it and to see the smaller stars. And I feel as if if you've suffered, either mentally or physically, you have a dark adapted eye, right? So I feel that that's what I have now, is that having spent a long time in that quite dark place, I spot it very easily in others. Um, and I'm very easily moved to a probably disproportionate degree of compassion if anybody expresses pain of any kind at all. Carry around with me this pouch of medication and nobody can stub their toe without me leafing up and pressing them to me and saying, what do you need? Analgesic, dystalgesic, you can take both together, darling, it's fine. Do you need a tranquilizer? Because I just, I cannot bear it, can't bear it immediately evokes this um, kind of memory, a kind of sense memory in me of what it was like. Um, That's really interesting because another thing that I've heard you say or suggest is that in a way the experience of others is finally kind of unreachable or opaque to us, um, which makes me wonder about the whole business of empathy and identifying with other human beings something I think about a lot but what you've described there that um metaphor of attenuating of your your visibility within the dark being heightened and a sensitivity to others pain an openness to it it's a version it's a version of identifying with others isn't it it's a it's openness yes but but it took my suffering to to reach that and in a way you could read it as being effectively a solipsistic act because I see somebody suffering and I feel mine and that's what I want to alleviate you know and and it has a kind of very long echo pain it 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 becomes kind of almost encoded in your response to things that one expects it constantly um and so if I see somebody suffering they have a headache or you know their back hurts I think oh no I hurt now (laughs) So, so if I can alleviate your suffering, then I'll I'll feel better. So I I feel as if it's a kind of mixture of extreme empathy and a sort of selfishness. And is it as mechanistic as just feeling yours, or is it? Might it be even just recognizing the fact of it, or the the world's kind of um, arrival at it? All right, in you, in Sarah Perry, but the possibility of it, the fact of it, indeed. Yeah, I hope so. I hope both. Mm. But I know for a long time it was quite a selfish response because I can talk about it now very cheerfully, um, but it took a year for me to be able to think about it without a kind of instinctive sorrow for myself, not for anybody else. So, you know, if somebody winced, they hurt their back. I began to sorrow for myself. And I think I had to, I have had to come to terms with the fact that I'm very self-pitying. You know, I'm not brave about this at all. I'm not brave about, you know, the long after effects of illness or, or uh, you know, the, the losses that came from it. And I, w- I wish I were. I turn out to be not at all stoic. You've thought a bit about the whole business as well of beauty as it is aligned to health mm. and illness and whatever whatever the counterposition is to beauty mm. I mean you may have not formulated those thoughts or even want to talk about them but do you want to say anything about that well I I think I took youth and when you're young and healthy there is a kind of beauty that you have by virtue of young and health you know you have shining eyes and you leap up out of your chair and your hair is kind of thick and glossy and your skin's very good and 
and it's it's great and you just kind of navigate the world as somebody who is not drawn and wincing and so on and then to and I took that for granted um you know just being young and and um I always think of the word bonny I was never I've never been a beauty but I but I was quite sort of bonny looking you know <laughs> like a kind of like a kind of Jersey cow, <laughs> you know, like glossy coated, solid Jersey cow producing really excellent milk and cream. And then I became like roadkill. It was, and I found that really hard. Yeah. I really did. And and there are a few photos of me. Um, there was one that was taken by a, a, a photographer who normally worked for Vogue or whatever. Um, and he took a portrait of me for a ghost story that I was doing. And it's just this photo. I mean, this was 10 days after surgery. I shouldn't have been out, but I refused to stop. I kept going because I wanted everyone to tell me I was brave. Um, and this sweating face, deathly pale, very drawn. And I hadn't brushed my hair because I couldn't sort of lift my, my, my top is inside out. <laughs> and I look at it and it's just this record. I'm glad it's there. I'm glad there's a photo of me at that time. Um, and it's an igno- it's a very ignoble feeling to be concerned about how you're received. But I've never wanted to be an object of pity. And there's something very diminishing and very humiliating and fundamentally deeply unattractive about struggling to get out of a chair. And I think it, the over and over again, the term humiliating would come back to me, that I had become someone who was pitiable and diminished, and weak. Um, and that I really struggled with. You know, I'd been somebody who... If I was carrying very heavy luggage on a train and a gentleman said, can I help you? I would wither them with a single stony glare and toss a suitcase up to the top. And I became someone who had to ask for help to get off the train. Never mind. You know, I hated that. I hate weakness in myself. And it had been externalised. You know, all my internal weakness that we all have had become kind of visible to everybody. It was just awful. So um, regaining strength has been vital a lot of what you're saying there does make me think very much certainly about your most recent book Mm. but I wonder if we could just move on to storytelling Mm. from that and just tell me where that comes from in you where the whole business of wanting to tell stories or well yeah not just write them but to communicate stories comes from the answer is so simple and unprofound that I'm ashamed to bring it out but I just like entertaining people I feel that you know there's a lot of talk about is the novel dead I don't care if it is or not if I had been born in 1526 I would have gone from village to village storytelling in exchange for food and um, if I'd been Welsh I would have been part of the lyric storytelling tradition I choose the novel because it's the most accessible means for me of telling stories but I don't think of myself as an artist particularly I don't think that there is anything in me which is as elevated as that I just want to tell stories constantly I'm incapable of answering the question how are you without responding with subplot and backstory um, and an unexpected twist at the end and I I just love it and I I think I always write for readers I was in Romania recently and they are a very kind of thoughtful, cerebral kind of Eastern European writing tradition and spoke to a couple of writers and their horror that I write for an audience and want 
want to be read, desperately want to be read. Um, but surely you do it, you know, for yourself. To it. I thought, oh, absolutely not. In no way. All of those things follow on from the impulse. And I think after the impulse to tell a story, hard on its heels comes my magpie fascination with anything that shines and desire to talk about myself at enormous length. Um, anything that shines. I like that phrase a lot. But I guess... That comes with its um, parallel of things that don't shine. And your work, to me, is infused with both of those. That wonders and beauties, a word that we've often found ourselves happening upon, the sublime, but also the, the darkness and horrors of the world. Mm. <clears throat> the whole business of goodness and wickedness feel to me present in all three of those books. Yes, and I suppose I consider them all to have a light of a kind um, or to be all part of the whole. Um, and I think I've been very fortunate. It's very difficult to express this without sounding insufferable, so I apologise to you and everybody else. Um, but I'm very fortunate in that I don't have to think too much about the ideas in my books or about what I might talk about because I'm thinking about them all the time. So if I simply say I'm going to tell a story, then because I'm constantly thinking about the nature of good, the nature of wickedness, um, how to reconcile faith of any kind with the mechanisms of physics. Um, I'm just thinking about that constantly anyway and have been since I was seven and came home from school and said to my dad, I watched the boys playing football in the big playing ground. Why did I see the ball land before I heard it? I was seven years old and my dad sat me down and he explained about how light travelling faster than sound. So this kind of constant need to understand the fabric of the world and how it works and to boil it down to these kind of universal constants. So I don't have to think about that. If I tell a story of any kind, then it will have that in it. But when I say magpie in mind, I just mean an incessant interest in things. Wickedness as well is very interesting. Say a bit about that. I've been thinking a lot about what it means. I use the word wicked a great deal, mm. um, probably because it's <clears throat> the lexus of my youth. Um, that word rather than evil. Yeah, I don't like yeah. the word evil. Yeah, you said. Why? What do these words carry? Evil seems to me to be an adjective used to describe a person. He's an evil man or whatever. Wickedness is an act. And I suppose what I prefer to think of is that we are all equal in our propensity for good or wickedness, rather than that some are more evil than others. I'm not sure that this can be borne out by history, um, but it's the way I have always thought of things. I suppose what I have is a kind of benevolent version of the doctrine of original sin, which, you know, I'm no longer a biblical fundamentalist, or indeed darken the doors of a church, if I can possibly help it. Um, Tell me about, just remind us what that is, what you mean by original sin. Um, the belief that we're all born in sin and cannot help ourselves but sin and can only um, be redeemed by Christ's sacrifice, just the conventional Christian theology. But there is something benevolent on the other side of that coin, which is that if you grapple, if you, gra if you fully, fully, humbly and benevolently grasp the idea that we are all equal in our capacity for these things, then the possibility of forgiveness and redemption and grace accessed by whatever means is also equally available to everybody. Um, and that's very challenging for people because, of course, we all want to think that we're better than the obvious kind of phalanx mm. of 
apparently wicked people. Um, but I very rarely use the word evil. That in that in your book, Melmoth, the Melmoth character is charged to bear witness to large acts of moral failure as well as more pedestrian ones mm. if you know drawing a distinction between those which seems to be largely a distinction of scale yeah rather than as you say propensity and and in doing that trying to bring people to what some kind of reckoning as to what to do with that the problem with melmoth if there is one which there is is that it doesn't have a rigorous kind of uh, watertight underpinning theory, because I don't have one. So there have been various readings of this book, some people calling it sort of effectively a Calvinist book, that some people are elected to do these terrible things, and, and Melmoth kind of represents election, you know, she's kind of watching you, you will do this thing. Some people have seen it as kind of a metaphor for depression, and that Melmoth is the nature of guilt, externalised guilt, kind of following you around, reminding you of what you've done. I wish I knew exactly what I had in mind, with her and with the kind of ontology behind it. But I know what I wanted to propose was the idea that that there is moral agency and purpose in the act of bearing witness mm. and that a failure to bear witness can have catastrophic consequences. And perhaps most of all, that the great wickednesses of the world are not carried out by devils. They're carried out by people like us. Who choose not to witness in some sense. Who have small failures of moral courage in whatever way that may be. So as we speak, somebody on the American border is fastening a steel gate on children who have no soap and clean water. Now, the person fastening that gate, I doubt, has ever felt a genuine loathing of children of any colour in their entire lives. But by a gradual hardening of heart and hardening of spirit, they are complicit in an act of great wickedness that history will, I am confident, look back on in shock. And when we see photos of the ICE border guards, I don't see evil people. I don't see people really who are any better than me. I see a, a kind of an accumulation of failures and that can accumulate into something vast. <clears throat> and when you say then that your impulse as a writer is to entertain, and I believe you a bit. Is, the, <laughs> is there in there also, this may sound like a tall claim, a bit grandiose, you're bearing witness, aren't you? You're offering, you're offering that witness to your readers. Yeah. So I suppose the way I have thought about this for myself is that I want my books to do everything which is absurd because, of course, they can't. But I would like them to be novels of ideas and I would like them to have moral virtue. And I, I realise how preposterous and how grandiose and old-fashioned it sounds to say that one hopes one's books will have moral purpose. But I hope that one would apply the same moral framework to, to your writing as you do to everything else. Um, but none of that would work if it weren't entertaining. Quite. And if the moral purpose was somehow delivered as a polemic, it would perhaps right. have less force. Yeah, yes? yeah. Absolutely, I wouldn't read it. Um, I'm an enormous fan of Iris Murdoch, I think, because they're very entertaining and vaguely absurd and often very funny. But at all times underpinning it, you're conscious of a very penetrating intelligence who has a very definite view and a challenging view. 
which encourages a kind of uh, re-examination of it, of the ways that we negotiate each other and negotiate the world. And um, thinking about Tolstoy as well and about what a kind of very moral person he was. And, you know, he had some very, very profound, quite radical political and moral ideas. But, you know, it's cracking reads. And I'm, I'm, I refuse to back down from my belief that it's OK to write a really entertaining novel. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in fact, that one ought to, actually, um, but that they can also kind of achieve everything else. Just tell me, you're mentioning Iris Murdoch, and of course, it's in the throats of that centenary. What um, you've written, well, we, you, you, you have thus far anyway accepted the idea of the Gothic as an interest of yours, mm. called just a Gothic writer. don't know if that still holds, but just tell me what that is. Because that's... <laughs> You've got two minutes. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, So the thing that I always say to people is you must understand that the Gothic is not a genre. You can't account for it by saying there's a maiden with a nightgown running through a corridor. That's, that's, it's, it is not the deployment of cheap motifs. It can be, mm. and those often get called the Gothic. It's a sensation. And fundamentally, the Gothic should be something that arouses in the reader the same destabilised longings and repulsions that the characters feel in the book so it's a sympathy for the devil you know you read it and you feel moved to be simultaneously seduced and repelled by the idea of madness and transgression and sin and all of this stuff so it doesn't the gothic isn't there and it doesn't work if you're not as destabilized as the maiden in the nightgown so is it contriving strangeness in the world or is it alerting us to the fact of it is it just amplifying it amplifying it i don't understand how anyone doesn't write gothic fiction mm. i mean have you seen what's out there mm. <laughs> it, everything is strange and destabilizing and madness is only ever you know half an hour away and the distinction between transgression and virtue is very fine and very easy to fall onto and um I've, I'm trying to write away from the Gothic now, um, but I don't think I quite can. I like that. The, so the, the line between transgression and virtue is quite narrow. Like. Yes. And the one thing that we often find ourselves wondering, certainly in medical education, is to what extent the arts and humanities, often particularly literature, can inform a moral sensibility mm. or, um, you know, enchant it in healthcare professionals. Talking to you here, and given that for your for, from your perspective, the primary purpose of writing is to entertain, and these things need to be cracking good reads, it sounds as if, without preaching to us, good writing galvanises something in us, or has the ability to galvanise something, to at least ask questions mm-hmm. of morality, if not to provide answers. Yes. And I I don't think that it is uniquely elevated or noble in that sense, but I think that at its best, a book will meet you like a person and do for you everything that a person can do in offering consolation sometimes or elevation sometimes or infuriation, all of those things. So a book at its best is a character that kind of wanders into your life and you may end up hurling it at the wall, which obviously one would never do uh, with an acquaintance, or it may stay with you forever on your shelves or it might fundamentally alter something in you. Um, Yeah. Tell me then about um, your take on on knowledge. Whenever we have conversations i'm struck 
by your easy reach across all sorts of domains of knowledge and flippantly delivered stuff <laughs> that you think, how does anybody know that? Um, which seem to straddle certainly science and literature, but also religion and seem to be drawn to the whole idea of what's mysterious in the world still yes. now. I was, I was, I'm sure you don't mind me declaring this, I was astonished in, in writing your the current book you're writing, you're actually doing an English, a physics A-level. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So have you got a, have you got a feeling around this, the hierarchies of knowledge that we attach to the world, up there being the scientific? Yeah, well, for me, certainly. Um, for a number of reasons, I think. Um, I will always be most yearning after what I don't have, and I have very little scientific knowledge. And therefore, I want it more than anything else. You know, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm far more longing to complete a physics A level um, than to read Proust because I've read some Proust. You know, it's fine. <laughs> it's not a challenge. Um, but you know, doing the maths module at the beginning of this sodding A level is really tricky. But also because there are absolutes which are not afforded to us in life or in literature. You know, there was this wonderful moment when I was working out the relative mass of a planet compared to the Earth, just for. A simple maths exercise and to get the answer right to put a tick next to a number was one of the most satisfying things that's happened to me in a very long time because one does not get ticks in life or in fiction actually um someone might put a tick next to a paragraph that three other people would throw into the fire so the satisfaction of the complete well-fenced answer has a real pull to it yeah absolutely however not you know the fact of the matter is certainly in the bits of science that med- medicine attaches itself to there are huge landscapes of uncertainty right. yeah. yeah and do you think then so even though slightly loaded question i've got even though you're drawn to the science as many of us are for concrete answers that literature provides a different register of knowledge or brings us to feeling more um, pushes the uncertainty at us and says, yeah. here it is. Yes, I think you're dead right. And also the thing that I've learnt is that you move through a kind of easy understanding of maths, physics, and then you move back into uncertainty again. <laughs> so you're entering into this continual loop of the more you know, the more you know you don't know. And that's what literature can do for you, I think. You read a book, you are altered often, And once you are altered, you must then nourish that altered self with another book, which will alter you again. So it becomes a quest for self-knowledge, a quest for more strangeness. And I've learned very quickly, even very early on in my studies, how how soon one can manipulate a formula um, and it's come up with apparently the wrong answer. But you understand that there's two ways to manipulate a mathematical formula. And I, I remember feeling really betrayed. I just wanted a straight answer for once in my life. Not even maths could give it to me. Um, but that's exciting too. Yeah. And the mysterious, interested in the whole idea of the mysterious even now in the 21st century. Yeah. Uh, The the critic D.P. Varma talked about the Gothic as being a quest for the numinous. And I think there is something in most of us that still lusts after the strange. And I've noticed the trend among many of my friends for being interested in witchcraft and astronomy. And I don't think that for a minute that they actually believe that burning sage in their new flats will smudge it and rid it of past spirits. But I think that the action and the ritual enables them to think that they think that. (laughs) So there's layers of 
belief and layers of self-persuasion, which I find very, very interesting, and that people who would find the idea of a Christian faith absurd, for all the reasons that you and I would absolutely understand, enjoy persuading themselves that they believe in the tarot, for example. And I do I do tarot readings do you? sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're often extraordinary. Um, but they're only extraordinary because our minds are extraordinary and kind of our ability to um, impute with meaning a, a card, you know, like ten of wands. Ah, oh, really? I really, you know, I really needed that today. Come on. <laughs> but we want it still. We'll always want it. And one other word, just to close, that we'll often find coming up in our conversations, which I think is an important word to you, which is the sublime. Tell me what that is and what it means to you. It's a place which is suspended halfway, I think, between an appreciation of beauty and a feeling of terror. So the sublime is something that moves you beyond mere, you know, look at this beautiful garden, look at these leaves. And it's not horror, you know, it's something else, something quite separate, which draws you nearer to, towards a kind of an idea of a god or a godlike space. So um, the really famous example of the sublime is the Brocken Spectre, which is merely an optical illusion where if you're standing on a mountaintop and the light is behind you and there is water vapour below you, then a vast circular rainbow will appear on the opposite mountaintop with you standing inside. It's a vast creature and you can move your arms and, and it's absolutely amazing. When the romantic poets... I've seen versions okay. of it from an aeroplane, but okay. I've not seen one myself. And the Romantic poets encountered it and wrote about it, and they understood fully it was merely the refraction of light through a lens. That's all it is. But nonetheless, you're moved to this kind of state of awestruck wonder, um, and I, I think that's why the sublime is something that I try to capture and I try to rest on and I constantly try to find because it doesn't require the suspension of reason. If anything, it's amplified by reason because you know what's causing it, but you're still astonished, which is exactly where I would hope to be, to never lose a kind of rationality and to always prize intellect above everything else, but to still be in a kind of constant state of wonder. Sarah Perry, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. Medicine Unbox keeps its large audio and film archive online. Do take a look. But for now, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy it.